0: All right, my friends, it is 7 o'clock, straight up, and so I invite you to find a place to sit. If you watch the news, or if you are on Facebook, you know what today is. And today's the a memory day of September 11th, 2001. And I'm sure looking at the age and stage of everyone in this room, you can all remember what was going on on that day. I asked Pastor John uh, where he was <laughs> <laughs> on September 1st, and he said he thinks he was in kindergarten. <laughs> uh, I can remember I watched, Tony and I watched it getting ready for work in the morning, and I didn't know what else to do. I just went to work. I, I was on driving on the 57 freeway, and nobody was on the 57 freeway in the morning. You knew something was going on. Got the corporate email shut the store down, go home, we're closing. And so everybody can remember that day. Uh, I brought a little video, a a memorial of that, of a person who lived uh, through that moment, and maybe someone that you might recognize in it, so let's watch that.
1: This is a place where I thought I was going to die. I was only there for two weeks, working temp to perm, and being at my desk on the 80th floor, I never thought on primary day, the next day, that I would be screeching for God to save me and don't let me die. I felt the building shake, and then there was debris coming in. One of the fire wardens on the floor said, go in the conference room, everything is under control. All of a sudden, the windows crashed in into the conference room, and that's when we realized Okay, is something really wrong? Once we start going down the stairs, when we get to like the 30th floor, you start to to feel, I think it's something that God puts in you. You know when something is wrong. Now I see firemen coming up. I'll never forget that because they probably didn't make it out of there. You're not thinking in that situation. You just know, is something wrong here? So we go down, to the mall, which is underneath the whole complex. And now all of a sudden, I felt rumbling. And then I felt an enormous amount of wind, like what you would think hell would be like. Debris is hitting me, I'm being thrown around. Now it's pitch black, and I can't even see my hand in front of me. And I remember screeching, God, please don't let me die in here. Please don't let me die. I didn't remember how I got out of there for for years. Even now I can't remember everything, but I do remember walking out near the Cortland Street side and a woman from the Associated Press snapped my picture. And that's the famous picture with my hand in my head. And now I'm walking and now all of a sudden I hear rumbling again. I hear it under my feet, my building, which is now in the Freedom Tower, the one with the antenna. I could see that it's gonna it's gonna collapse. And I, and now I'm, I'm really running really, really fast. I kept falling. As quickly as it started, it stopped. I stayed in front of the TV, like for days. And I kept thinking, how did I get out of that building? Once I saw what happened, why did I not die? I met a young lady um, on September 11th of 2003. She literally kept um, speaking to me saying, you know, you need God. I actually hired another woman. She sat right next to me and she would talk about God and she would tell me I need to read my Bible. I was searching for God. I was running into Catholic churches, you know, um, lighting candles because I knew I needed forgiveness. I didn't understand the gospel. I went to see The Passion of the Christ, the first showing in New York anywhere. And when I walked out of there, I called my girlfriend Marilyn and said, I'm going to church with you and that was Palm Sunday, I heard the biblical gospel that God is holy, we are not, we need forgiveness of our sins. Jesus Christ paid a debt we couldn't pay. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we may become the righteousness of Christ in him. I started to read my Bible and it opened up in ways it never did because I had his spirit. Jesus Christ who knew no sin became sin for us, that we may become the righteousness of Christ in him. I evangelize because I love my neighbor and I love the Lord and I want to see sinners saved partly because God saved me. When I woke up on September 10th, I never knew that that I may stand before a holy, righteous God. I don't want any of my days to be a waste. I want it to bring glory to Him, whether I'm at work, I'm being a good steward of what He's given me, sharing the gospel wherever I go, just loving my neighbor. And, you know, I wake up in the morning and I think, today's a new day to bring glory to Christ. We are those who have the message. Why would we not share it?
0: That's a good one, isn't it? that's really going to be the theme for tonight, that God is the one who chases after and rescues people. I'm glad you're here tonight. Let's open in prayer. And dear God, I thank you for uh, that one individual testimony, but that testimony is recounted hundreds of times right here in this room of you rescuing individual souls, and we praise you for your work uh, in our lives and also in the lives around the world. God, we lift this up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 1 Thessalonians, that's where we are, 1 Thessalonians. And in chapter 1, I'm glad you're here tonight. Uh, There's a a story of three men who were trapped on an island that was deserted, and they find a genie's lamp, and they agree to split the wishes. So each one of the three gets a wish. And so the first man wishes that he was 25% smarter. And as soon as that wish was granted, he swam off the island. The second guy gets the lamp, and he rubs it, and his wish is 50% smarter. So as that wish is granted by the genie, he chops down a tree, he builds a boat, and he rows off the island. So the third guy, he gets the, the lamp and he gets to rub it. He's now all alone on the island. It is literally deserted other than him. And he rubs it. And, and his wish is that he would be 100% smarter. And as soon as that wish is granted him, he walks right over the bridge. <laughs> Sorry, guys. That's the best I could come up with. Our goal is to get smarter tonight and walk where the, where the Bible takes us. All right. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So let's stop right there. This is setting the scene. We did a lot of that last week, um, but there are a few other pieces to this puzzle that we didn't get to last week. This is talking about a place called Thessalonica. This is a, a group of Christians in a church called Thessalonica. And I know this is kind of small, so I'm going to use this little red. um, Let's see here. Where's the red one? There it is. Okay, so I'm using it on the right-hand screen. And right up here is Thessalonica. And so it is on a main route east and west there in Macedonia. It's the capital city. It's the largest city. 200,000 people live in Thessalonica. And there are three people that are introduced here uh, as going to this city. There's Paul, there's Sylvanus and Timothy. And I want to introduce those guys to you quickly and how they ended up there. You have Sylvanus, which is, we also know him as Silas. And he was a Jewish leader. Um, we're going to see that in just a minute as we read some accounts in acts on how they got there. He was a prophet. He's a Roman citizen. He joined Paul to take a letter from Jerusalem up to Antioch. So on this map, Jerusalem is down here, low, way down in Judea, lower right-hand side there. And they were taking a letter. Silas joined Paul to take a letter up to Antioch, which is up the coast, up to there, all right. We also know something else about Silas. He liked to sing, so he was like on the worship team. All right. There's another man that is a part of this, uh, this trio, and it is Timothy. We find out that he is a son of a Greek, meaning a Gentile dad, and a Jewish mom. And that's going to cause some, <laughs> some painful problems for him that we're going to read today. And he joined Paul in a city called Derby. And so Derby is up around the corner right up here. So Paul starts out down here and he heads out up here towards Antioch to take that letter and as he continues on on this mission trip, he ends up in Derby here and that's where he meets Timothy. Now Paul down here in Jerusalem, he's a Jew. He has the credentials, high credentials. All the Jews respect him because he was trained by Gamaliel and Being though a Jew, he put his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah that they were looking for. And we're not going to go down that road on how that happened. You probably know that story already. And though you remember that Jesus, right before he left earth, he had what we know as the Great Commission. The declaration to them, you need to take this message that Jesus is is the Messiah all around the world to Jews and to the Gentiles. Well, the Jews thought the Gentiles were icky, you know, (laughs) like grody, gross. Raise your hand if you're sitting next to someone gross right now. (laughs) All right it wasn't because the Gentiles were gross. It was just because they didn't do the same hand washing. They didn't eat the same foods at the same time. And so the Jews really didn't want to do that. But Paul had no problem with it. He grew up around them, and he really didn't have a problem with that. And so he said, I'll go. And that's where he goes on these mission trips. You know them as his missionary journeys. And this is a map. That red line is a map of his second mission trip. And so everything that we are reading and what we talk about today all was a part of this one mission trip, right? And so if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, so that's left in your Bibles, we're going to be moving a lot in our Bibles today. We are going to get through all of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, but it's only 10 verses. So Acts chapter 15, left in your Bible to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 verse 22 is where we'll start off. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, meaning the church in Jerusalem, way down there on the right-hand side of the map, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and who's the next name? Silas, leading men from among the brethren. And so... We know him as Silas really more than we know him as Silvanus. You know, Silas is like what everybody called him, and Silvanus is uh, what his mom called him when he didn't take out the trash. Silvanus, you get back. You're like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. So Silvanus was like his I'm-in-trouble name, but mostly we know him as, as Silas. And so Paul took Silas with him to take that letter. So where did Timothy come in? Well, look at chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Okay, so let's stop right there for a minute. Back on this map, Paul starts down in in the the home church, the mother church, called the mothership, you know, where where everything started. But we got to spread this all around the world. Jesus says, and so Paul says, well, I'll go. Goes up to Antioch and he takes Silas with him. And as he continues on, he goes over to Derby and it also mentions Lystra. Lystra is where the red dot is, right in the middle of what is that green area that's called Galatia. Um, so Lystra and Derby are the two names, and that's where he meets this Timothy. And he's a mixed race, would maybe be a way that, that we would understand it. He has a mom who's a Jew, and actually she's a believer. Uh, a, a Christian, and also though a dad that was a Greek, verse 2. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Well, there's another name. So we have Derby, Lystra, and Iconium all kind of a part of Timothy. But you can see they're all in this region right here. Now, this is Turkey. So Derby, I- Iconium, and Lystra are all those cities that are mentioned there in verse 2. And so Paul wanted this man to go with him. Obviously, he he had a good reputation. Uh, people trusted him. He wanted someone else like that. He had, he had Silas with him, and now he wanted someone else like that. He wanted him to go with him, and he took him, meaning Timothy, and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so this is where this this uh, this cost Timothy a little bit. <laughs> Paul shows up and says, Hey, you want to come with me? He's like, Yeah, I'd love it. It'd be great. Go on a mission trip with you. And he's like, uh, One thing I have to tell you. Now, he didn't do that because he needed him to be saved. And so the circumcision was a part of his salvation. He was already saved. He was already going to heaven. Timothy was. He already knew about Jesus from his, from his mother. Um, but Paul knew that that was going to be a sticking point with people that they were going to try to reach. And so. He, he said, all right, Timothy, this is, this is one of the sacrifices that you're going to have to make to reach people for Jesus. And there's always sacrifices that, that, that people make for Jesus. Some people sell their stuff and go goes to some other part in a third world country. Everyone makes sacrifices who shares Jesus, even if it's just their own pride or if it's their own guts, you sacrifice something to share Jesus. And so Timothy certainly certainly did that. And then how did these guys end up all the way over here in Thessalonica? Uh, well, in verse 6 in chapter 16, it says they, they passed through Phrygian and Galatian region and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. we see Asia here. So here's Asia. And they wanted to share the gospel there. The Holy Spirit just didn't let them. That seems weird. Why wouldn't God let people share the gospel? God's bigger than us. I don't know. He, obviously, he had other plans for these guys. And so, verse 7, and after that, they they came to Musia. They were trying to go into Bithynia. They wanted to share the gospel in Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them to do that either. <laughs> They're trying to tell people about Jesus, and God's saying, no, don't do that. They walk through this entire area all the way over, and they end up in this little port town of Troas, right there, kind of up at the top, right on the shore of the Aegean Sea. And in verse 9, it says, a vision appeared to Paul in the night while they were there in Troas. And a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go up to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Oh, we get it now. We couldn't do it in all this area that we were traveling through because God had something else. He has a dream. His dream one night, and the man says, hey, come over and help us. And Paul says okay, that's what we'll do. And so they move across over into Macedonia. You can see the word Macedonia, upper left-hand side up there, Macedonia. So that yellow area, upper left-hand side is all of Macedonia, and it plots the route that he took. Now, the rest of chapter 16 that you're in is all of the churches and the people that he met while he was there in this part of the world. The very first believer in this part of the world is a woman named Lydia. And then later in this chapter, they get arrested. They get thrown in jail. And then you remember the story where the jailer, the the sheriff who has them in shackles, gets saved. Remember that part? And then verse 40 of chapter 16. I'm quickly moving you through their mission trip to get you to Thessalonica. It says, They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. That was the very first woman that got saved there. And when they saw the brethren, the other Christians, they encouraged them and departed. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And that's where we pick it up from last week. Remember, that's what Paul did. Every single time, whenever he went into a town, he would first go to the synagogue. He would advocate for Jesus being the Messiah. And the Jews generally did not uh, take well to that. And so he did go share it with the Gentiles. Remember, Paul was going to the Gentiles, even though he would always go to the synagogue first. And uh, the Gentiles would generally take it a little better than the Jews. Most often, though, some Jews would get saved, just like they did here in Thessalonica. And here in Thessalonica, you remember from last week that the Jews who were left in that synagogue, the ones who didn't get saved, the most of them, they got all mad. I mean, it really ticked them off that these new guys, these three new guys showed up to town, brought this whole new movement into their city. And so there was so much power of these synagogues in these towns that they started a riot. And, and the riot got so crazy that they put so much heat on the not really on Paul or on Silas or on Timothy, but on the people who lived there, the citizens of the town. And Jason had, had been asked by Paul, hey, can we use your garage for for a meeting? And he said, oh, Yeah, it's not nothing much. I'll back the car out and I'm sure we can use the garage. And so they came over to Jason's house and they kicked Jason out, took him to jail until he could get Paul to leave. And so that's how Paul ended up in uh, Thessalonica, by taking this long trip. I mean, all the way back here in Jerusalem, God already had a plan. God knew that these people needed to be saved. God knew that Lydia needed to be saved. God God was reaching them, but he had a direction that they had to go to, to get there. And then we see quickly how he leaves with all that persecution. And so that's why this book in 1 Thessalonians is written, because he ends up in Corinth, you know, those two books, First and Second Corinthians, and he's so worried about the potential that they're going to fall away from their faith um, because of their youngness in the faith. And so he writes these letters. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians again in verse 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. And it says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of... Our God and Father. Now, why were Paul and Timothy and Silas, why were they praying so much for these Christians? Any ideas? Why were they praying so much for them? What were they going through? Yeah, they were getting physically beat up, thrown in jail. Their, their friends and family were abandoning them because they had put their faith in Jesus and no one wanted to be around that. We want to be on like the... The big number side of the riot, not the small number side of the riot. And so they were so concerned that they were pouring over them in prayer. And that's the purpose of these two books is to encourage them and help them in the middle of what's going on. Verse four, knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Knowing God's choice of you. Other versions of this verse Um, use the word election, God's election of you. And you may not know it, but this one little small verse is highly controversial. This one right here with its word, God chose you or God elected you. When I preach, I don't save a single person. As a matter of fact, when I preach, there isn't anybody smart enough, astute enough, interested enough in God to choose God on their own. It is God who goes out and finds people. Just like the video that we saw, that woman who got rescued from those 9-11 towers. God is the one who rescues people. God is the one who seeks out people. So there are three things that we know in the Bible regarding this idea of God choosing people. We know that no one seeks after God. Nobody seeks after God. We know that God wants everyone to be saved. And we know that people have a free will to choose what they want to choose. And it almost seems like those three don't go together, that God wants everyone saved, and God is the one who chooses people, and yet at the same time, people can choose God or not. And I want you to see in the Bible where those three truths are all wrapped up in in Scripture here and, and why Paul says it like this. So turn in your Bibles now to the book of Romans. Romans talks about this topic of God choosing and people choosing and who chooses who, to, when. Romans chapter 3, in verse 10, it says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, and there is none who seeks for God. You get that? Nobody seeks after God. And you might say, but, but I did. I was looking for something. I knew I needed something. Well, that was God's grace in giving you that interest and that desire to go after Him. It says, all have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is, there is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison they ask and their lips, and it continues on about how people are completely evil at their core. Nobody seeks after God at all. Now, moving your Bible to the right to Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter eight, verse 28.'re like, but, "But I know I seek after God." Romans chapter eight verse 28. It says, "And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew." He also predestined... Those are some big words there. um, He predestined to to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Boil it all down. God is the one who seeks after people. God God is the one who looks out for people. And if that's not enough, if you kind of want to argue with God and say, but I'm the one that found God, chapter 9 verse 14, kind of have to follow this one a little bit, but it gets to the point of who decides how this works in in who chooses who. It says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on... God, who has mercy. And then it goes down to the bottom, and it says, look at verse 20. It says, On the contrary, who are you, O oh man? Who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does the potter have the right over the clay to make from some, the lump one vessel for honor and another vessel for common use? You're going to ask God that? And God is the one who decides that. So no one seeks after God. That's the point. That, that's the point. God is the one who chooses people. But remember, God wants everyone to be chosen. But man has a, a freedom to choose. Still in Romans, Romans chapter 10, just one page over, Romans 10, verse 13. Romans 10, verse 13 says, Whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever, this almost seems like. How can these two things fit together? How can it be that God chooses, like He said in First Thessalonians, God chose you. That God is the Potter; He's the one that puts everything together. That He's the one that foreknew and predicted. How could it be that God chose them, but also whoever gets to pick gets to be saved? How can those two things work together? How can it be that God chooses and people choose? And here's my answer. I don't know. Both of those things are taught in Scripture. Somehow God's choosing works in connection with man's choosing. How does it all work? I don't know. I just know the Bible teaches both of those things. Instead of getting all wrapped up and riled up about what all the word, we should just praise God that he created us and he made a way for our our salvation, and we know about it. Um, And that is really what Paul's saying. He chose you. And and that made him sit up a little taller when they heard that. The chapter today uh, has four aspects of these Christians and their faith. The faith of the Thessalonians, we see it in, in four different ways. One, the beginning of their salvation. And that's what we have already studied, that God chose them. Obviously, they had to choose God too, But God chose them. And I'm sure that made them sit up a little taller. They they stuck their necks up a little taller. Yeah, God chose us. Uh, The beginning of their faith, the duplicating of their faith, the evidence of their faith, and that there is hope for them because they are being persecuted for their faith. So those four things, the beginning of their faith, we already looked at that, the duplication of their faith, meaning it multiplying over and over again, the evidence of their faith, and that they have hope. They have hope because of their persecution for their faith. Okay, so I want to show those things to you now, though. Look at uh, verse 5 of First Thessalonians 1. "'For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what the kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake.'" So they're starting to set up this idea that you followed us because we are godly men now. You are also godly people. And so in verses 6 to 8, I want you to see if you can figure out how many generations of Christians there are mentioned in these verses. It says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. So okay, did you count how many generations that was? Anybody have a guess? Four. That, that's, a, that's a good guess. So let's, let's start back up in verse 6, because that's where we start with the generations. The first generation, it says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. So who was first generation there? The Lord Jesus. Jesus was the example to everyone. And then, same there in verse 6, it says, You also became imitators of us now who's the us that's paul and silvanus or silas and timothy that's the us so that's generation number 2 and then the beginning of the verse it says you also became imitators of us who's the you also okay so that's the thessalonians we're already into the third generation so first we had the lord jesus and uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas were saved, and they deepened their faith in the Lord. And uh, then the Thessalonians sought and Paul and Timothy and Silas, and it was pretty crazy for a very short amount of time, like a very short amount of time. Remember, Paul shared the gospel in the synagogue. Do you remember how many weeks he did that? Three. He, he shared the gospel in the synagogue three weeks And then he went and started telling the Gentiles, and boom, he's kicked out. So the actual time that he had with people who were saved was very short. Days, maybe a week or two. But they so quickly saw it in him. So anyway, that's a third generation. And then we have in verse 7, another generation. It's to the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Well, that's a whole region, whole upper left-hand side of the map, the whole region they were examples to. That's the the fourth generation. But it doesn't end there. It says in verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only there in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Worldwide. This was a duplicating church, a multiplying that you could say that there's someone else that came to faith because of me, not obviously because of you. God is the one who chose them, but you spent the time to duplicate your faith. I hope you'd want to do that. Um, But if you want to do that, you have to, what am I doing to duplicate my faith? What, What is it that I'm actually doing to be a duplicator of my faith. What were the things that these people did to duplicate your faith? Well, many of you have kids of various ages. A lot of your kids are down the hallway right now. Well, there's a place that you could duplicate your faith. You can't force it, but you could duplicate it. Here's something that Tanya and I do. Every Wednesday night and every Sunday morning when we're done with church, we get in the car and our conversation on the way home is the same thing every single Sunday, every single Wednesday. And so the question is is, what did you learn tonight? And so we hear about the kid who did this to me and the teacher who made that funny joke, and the, my friends who did this and the snack that we had, you know, depending on the age, you know, now they're a little older and beyond that. But talk about all those things. What's one thing that you learned about Jesus? What's one thing that you learned about God? The benefit in doing something like that, just tossing out ideas to you here, parents, the benefit of doing that is is they grow accustomed to saying out loud the things that they know about Jesus. Um, That's not something that just comes naturally to you. And so they just grow accustomed to at least saying it to somebody. And then our kids have learned that they also then have to ask us the same question, (laughs) What did you guys learn? And so we then tell them what we learned on Wednesday night and Sunday morning, too. And over the years, that is one of our ways of attempting duplication, um, that we're duplicating what we know into somebody else. Now, God is is the one who saves them. God is the one who jumped out and rescued them. It wasn't me talking to them in the car. He chose them, they chose him. But the duplication process, I got to be a part of that process. Most of you are married. You're sitting next to someone that you like, at least a little. We're not just talking about duplication in it, it, with evangelism. We're also talking about just duplication in depth of faith, depth of faith. So when you get in the car and it's just the two of you driving home tonight, what's one thing that stood out to you? What's well, the one thing that stood out to you? You're beginning to to share with each other and duplicate the things that you know, even in your own spouse, uh, the duplication of your faith in your coworkers um, or the friends that you have. It's not some miraculous, uh, you know, they, they they took some pill from GNC and it just bam, made, you know, made them duplicate themselves in their faith. Very practical, simple, daily methods of verbalizing to other people the faith that they have. And so I hope you want to duplicate your faith. Uh, we want to be a duplicating church. We have Hope Now Bible Church that came from us. One of our elders moved to Fresno quite a few years ago now, and it's part of a ministry that he was working at. He started Hope Now Bible Church, and it came from us. We, we still heavily support them financially and in other ways. And we want to be a duplicating church. There are people in Fresno that know about Jesus and are saved and are getting baptized that you will never know um, because someone from us duplicated and went somewhere else. And so that's a wonderful thing. We want to duplicate as much as we can wherever we can. That's why we have platoons and set apart groups duplicating depth of faith, not just the salvation aspect, but the deepness, the wholeness of their faith in, in Jesus. So anyway, the beginning of their faith... We already talked about that. The duplicating of their faith. And there are two more. The evidence of their faith and the hope that they have because they are being persecuted for their faith. So we've already looked at the beginning of their faith, the duplication of their faith, five generations of that. And then let's look at the evidence of their faith. That's verses 9 and 10. The evidence of their faith. In verse 9 it says, For they themselves report about us, What kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Did you know that there is evidence that you are saved and it's not the things that you don't do? Dead people don't sin, right? So it's not about what you don't do you can look at evidences in your life to know that you are saved or to remind yourself of the faith that you have. And it mentions some of those in here. The first one that it mentions is something that they had done in the past, that they turned to God from idols. They could look backwards in their life as evidence and say, look at what happened in my life because of the faith that I had. Let me look back to that, and that is an evidence of their faith. They went from God to idols, and I bet you could do all those same things in your own life. Can you, can you look back in your life? Can you look back and remember the things that, that you used to do? Can you think of what you did the day before you got saved until now? How long have you been saved? Five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Can you remember the day before you got saved? How much has changed in that time? This is one of the evidences right now. <laughs> you're here, all right? You've changed. You would have never been here before. Not that coming to church means you're saved, but here's an evidence that you could look at. Not only that, not only could they look backwards, but it also says they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So not only can they look back and say, hey, we used to do that, we used to serve idols, and now," but now in the present... We're serving Him. Now we can look at our ministry that we have in our local church, and we can see that it's working. The New Testament calls that fruit. Can you look at your life and notice that you have fruit results of your salvation? Look at the ministry that you have. God is working in you and through you. Can you see that in your life? Well, that is evidence. You can look at your past and see the evidence of your faith. You can look at your, what, what is happening in your life right now. There's evidence in your faith. You can see where this is going. Also, future. Look at also an evidence of your faith that you, verse 10, you wait for his son from heaven. Did you know that one of the evidences of your faith is that you are looking forward to Jesus coming back? That is one of the evidences that you are, that you're saved. It doesn't mean that you want to die right now and that you don't love your family and none of those things but that you are looking forward to Jesus coming back, that is an evidence of your faith in Jesus. And they had all of these evidences. And quickly, the last one here is that there is hope for them because of the suffering for their faith. Um, back in verse 6, says that you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received word in much Tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I'd already mentioned to you that the church in Thessalonica had been crushed by the overpowering bullying of the synagogues. And they had that. They had that power to bully anybody, and they were bullied. And they were saved in the middle of all of that. And it says here in verse 10 that it is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So I don't, I don't know if we can do the math here. Not only does Jesus save us in tribulation, meaning the difficulties that we have right now, and, and doesn't mean that you avoid them. Even if these Thessalonians died, they were rescued. <laughs> they immediately went to heaven. So in verse 6, God is rescuing them in their tribulation. And in verse 10, He is rescuing Christians from future tribulation. And I think this is referring to the tribulation um, because that's the topic of this whole book is that these people were worried about being in the tribulation. And so there's hope in their salvation of not only being rescued in the current situation by God's comfort, His peace, His help in the middle through it, but also his future from the future tribulation that is to come, meaning the tribulation that they hadn't experienced yet. We haven't experienced that tribulation yet, but it is still to come. That seven-year tribulation that we're talking about on Sunday. It's 8 o'clock straight up. So let's close in prayer. Well, dear God, we thank you for your word tonight, and we thank you for your seeking out of people. Uh, We thank you that you chose us and by your mercy and your grace, we in some way in our ineptitude chose you too. And we praise you for that and we thank you for it. And now I pray that, that our lives could remind us of that tomorrow, that today would help us in living our life tomorrow, with living a faith so that we could duplicate what we know with other people even tomorrow. So we ask for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen.